not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know not that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits in the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. The tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and the bird of reptile and sea creatures can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes blessings and cursings. My brothers, these things ought not be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Roughly six weeks ago, I made it very clear that I was done playing games. I have done everything I can to protect my wife from the garbage that's going on. I cannot protect her when you come into our church and you stand in the hallways and you gossip about your pastor. You know who you are. Knock it off. It's sinful. Abundantly sinful. If what comes out of your mouth is pastor has been telling people and then you see my wife walk around the corner and suddenly you shut your mouth, you don't deserve to say anything else. I'm done with it. I will call it out from the pulpit every time. I'm not playing games. Every time I hear about it, I will stand up here and I will call it out. That's just the way it's going to be because I'm finished. If you don't like it, I'm sorry. That's just what's going to happen. You know who you are. I'll leave it at that. Now we will go on with the sermon for this morning. In just a few minutes. We're going to look at the book of Romans chapter 1. We're going to focus on verses 2 through 4. 2 through 4. If you want to go ahead and find your way there, it's in the Bible app. It, uh, you can find it in your Bible, of course. Well, hopefully, unless uh, somebody took Romans out of your Bible. But uh, it should be in your Bible. It's on our website, Romans chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, if you want to find your way there. You might look at the title of this message this morning and you think um, that, you know, pastor doesn't know what he's talking about or he has some sort of English problem or something because he says, who is the gospel of God? Shouldn't it be what is the gospel of God? And I believe that if you bear with me, you will understand why I titled the message this way. Christopher Searcy was playing basketball with his friends on May 16, 1998, when he was shot in the chest and a bullet perforated his aorta. His friends helped him get 
to within 40 feet of the entrance of Ravenswood Hospital and then went inside and they asked for help. The hospital staff refused to help Christopher, saying that it was against the hospital's policy to administer aid to those that were outside of the hospital. Eventually, a policeman was able to get a wheelchair and wheeled Christopher into the hospital where he was helped by the hospital staff, but it was too late. Christopher died about an hour later. Many times it seems that in our churches, we're surrounded by people that desperately need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yet Christians are content to share it only with those that manage to come inside their church. Even worse, sometimes we are so busy being distracted from what really matters that we never share the gospel at all. The great British preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, that, that his fear is that we have become so familiar with a certain word like gospel, or we have become so academic in our approach to, to them that we are not thrilled and moved to the depth of our being by the wonder of it all. As I stated last week, the gospel is the central uh, theme to the book of Romans. And in these verses, Paul gives us this description of what the gospel of God is. And as we listen, my hope is that we're moved to a more profound love for the Lord Jesus Christ. If we were to read Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7 in the Greek, it would be just one long sentence. Paul starts off by identifying who he is, and then he describes what he calls the gospel of God, and then he explains how the gospel goes to the nations, and then he greets the saints in Rome. This message is going to focus on verses 2 through 4 of Romans chapter 1. So I'd ask that if you are willing and able, would you please stand out of respect for God's word. Romans chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version this morning. Which he promised, this is talking about the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this word. I pray that it would penetrate our hearts and lives this morning, that it would speak to us, and Lord, even as we sing, all glory be to Christ, that we would recognize and understand that it's all about Jesus Christ. Speak for your saints are listening. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Last week, we looked at how the gospel comes to us from God. Paul did not make the gospel up. The gospel originated with God. The gospel is all about God. And it tells us how we can have this right relationship with God through his eternal son, whom God sent to bear our sin. So to start off today, I want us to notice first that the scriptures promise beforehand the gospel of God. The scriptures promise beforehand the gospel of God. Let me just be clear when I say that God always works in accordance to his word. God always works in accordance to his word. This is why Paul says that the gospel of God is that which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy 
scriptures. The gospel isn't plan B. It is not God's alternative plan that he had, he had to come up with because the Jews had rejected the Messiah. Nor is the gospel something that Paul just kind of made up. He's like sitting around one day and said, oh, I got to make up some great story. It wasn't even Paul's idea. The gospel comes right out of the Old Testament, which Paul calls what? He calls it the Holy Scriptures. The fact is, God gave the promise of the gospel in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, right after the fall. God said the seed of the woman would bruise the head of the serpent. And then we have this picture of the gospel in the Old Testament sacrificial system, which was clearly revealed to Moses. But I believe it was also revealed beginning with uh, Cain and Abel. The payment for our sin is death, but God in his grace would accept the blood sacrifice of an acceptable substitute. And as we read through the Old Testament and as we're rereading it, we see it again when we come to Abraham and God tells Abraham to do what? To his only son. He says, Abraham, go and sacrifice your only son, Isaac. And we know what happened. God intervened and he provides a substitute, which was a ram instead of Isaac being sacrificed. God was showing what he would later do by sending his own son as a necessary offering for our sins. As Isaiah 53 makes it clear, Jesus is the Lamb of God who was wounded for our transgressions. A few years ago, we went through the book of Acts. As a church, we noticed that when Paul spoke to the Jews, he would reason with them from the scriptures and he was trying to show them that Jesus was the Messiah. He does this in Acts chapter 13. He gives a summary of Old Testament history up to King David and then he concludes with this. All of this man's offspring God has brought to Israel a savior, or of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised in Acts 13, 23. And in Acts 17, when Paul visits Thessalonica, we read, And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. The gospel is not this made-up message by Paul or any other apostle. God promised the gospel through his prophets, and he revealed it in the Old Testament. The gospel. Now, it's somewhat interesting that Paul never uses, the, or that Paul uses the word holy here to describe the scriptures. It's very possible that Paul did this because he had these critics that were, were accusing him of promoting immoral and sinful behavior under the disguise of grace. They were saying that Paul was, uh, had set aside the law of Moses and therefore he had opened the door for people to live however they pleased. And so Paul's letting everyone know that he views the scriptures as holy because we discover how to live holy lives in the scriptures. The scriptures are also holy because they come from the holy God. Paul's message, which was the gospel of God, was in line with and fulfillment of the holy scriptures. Paul saw Jesus as a fulfillment of the scriptures. The word scripture literally means the writings. God used the prophets to write down his revelation for their own and succeeding generations to be able to read it. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, he tells us that all scripture is breathed out by God. 
That's some of it. All scripture is breathed out by God. Not only the things we like, but all of it. And if we deny part of it, we make God out to be a liar. Now, God could have sent angels, right, to every single language in every single generation worldwide to communicate his truth to all people. Don't you think that would have been easier? Don't you think that would have been easier to get the gospel out? Just send some angels to tell everybody. It seems like it would be easier than sending people. Right? Because what do we do? I don't know if you struggle with this, but I know I do. I struggle with being obedient. People struggle to learn languages. I don't know if you've ever tried to learn a foreign language. I struggle big time. They struggle to translate the Bible. Yet God chooses to reveal himself through the written word. Now stop and think about this. I know in America, right, we have all kinds of Bibles. You can go down into my office. I have all kinds of, of Bibles in my office. And, and sometimes I get myself in trouble because there's this, there's this Facebook group. It's, oh man, it's terrible. It's got all these super nice, like, preaching Bibles. And they're made of, like, lamb skin. And they just kind of fall open. And the pages are super nice. And, and they're, like, $200. And I look at them. I'm like, oh, I love that. Oh, I, I want to buy that Bible. And I, gotta, I just got to refrain myself from buying it. Sometimes I find myself like lusting over a Bible, I guess. I don't know. I, I guess you can do that. We have all these Bibles. We have several Bibles. We have, we have them on our tablets, on our phones. We have Bibles everywhere. But everywhere the word of God has gone, the culture has been transformed by the Bible. As people learn to read the word of God and God opens their minds to the truths that are in it. We often take our Bibles for granted, don't we? We have the entire Bible in several translations. You know, we have the ESV, the CSV, the nearly intelligent version. The, oh, sorry. Um, the, you know, we have all NASB, RSV, and we have all these versions of the Bible. What do we do with it? Oh, that we would devour it. Like it's our favorite food. Like we, we would just dive into the Bible. Think of the best thing you've ever eaten in your life. That you've, that, that, the, the best thing that you've ever put in your mouth. And if somebody came to you and, and put that in front of you. For me, um, one time my wife made this macaroni and cheese. And I'm not like a huge mac and cheese fan. But she made this mac and cheese, but she didn't even know how she made it. She can't, she's never been able to make it again. It was the best mac and cheese I've ever had in my life. And we've never had it again because she don't know how she made it. And, and so, but, you know, just imagine this is the best thing that you've ever had. And somebody puts that in front of you. It'd be like, you go, nah, I, I don't want any of that mac and cheese. We should have this hunger for God's word, right? We should hunger for it because uh, 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 we should dive into it. And because it's so prevalent, what do we do? We take it for granted. We need to be like Hein Pham, 
He was raised a devout Buddhist in Vietnam, but one day in 1971, he was given a Bible by an American soldier and soon found a Christian church that would explain about who Jesus Christ was. And he believed in Christ and gave his life to Jesus. Hein worked as a civilian translator for the American military and worked with some missionaries, but with uh, four years, within four years, Vietnam fell to communism and Hein was arrested. He'd be in and out of prison for several years. During a lengthy jail term, it became the sole purpose of his captors to indoctrinate him against the West and the ideals of the Christian faith. He was not allowed to read anything in English and was only permitted to read communist propaganda. He began to buckle under the onslaught that he thought he had been lied to. He made the determination that the next day he would no longer pray and he would no longer think of his Christian faith ever Again, he was assigned to clean the latrines, the job that everyone hated. And as he was cleaning, his eye caught what he thought was an English printed on one piece of paper. He snatched it up, washed it off, and put it in his pocket. That night, he pulled out a small flashlight, and shining it on the damp piece of paper, he read Romans chapter 8. He was trembling in shock as he read and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or the sword? No, in all these we are more than conquerors to him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither life nor death, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. I began to weep. He cried out to God and he asked for forgiveness. And the next day, he asked to clean the latrines again. And he made it his chore on a regular basis. And each day, he picked up a portion of scripture, cleaned it off, and added it to his devotion for that night. Well, the Bible for some is just junk. But for us, the Bible is the source of life. Oh, that we would take God's holy word that's written to us and that we pour over it, seeking to know the creator through God's word, which in which he reveals himself to us. That we would know God's promise in the Old Testament to send a savior has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And although from our perspective, it took centuries to fulfill, know this, God always, always, always keeps his promises in his time. Certainly there were scoffers, right? Just like today, there were those who mocked, hey, where's the promised Messiah at? Certainly some were godly who were waiting for God to keep his promise. There will be times when you will be tempted, Christian, to give up, to give in. You will in your despair think, oh, is it really worth it? I just want to throw in the towel. I don't want to do this anymore. And you will wonder, where is the promise of the coming of Jesus Christ? Is he really coming again? But don't give up. Dear Christian, don't you give up. 
You persevere in your faith because you know what? God always keeps his promises. Jesus is coming to judge this evil world and he will come and bring full redemption to his people. Now notice, the Savior is the focus of the gospel of God. The Savior is the focus of, a God, of the gospel of God. The very substance of the gospel is Jesus Christ. The gospel is a Christ-centered gospel. I shared with you recently about a gospel conversation I was having with a man who kept trying to steer the conversation away from Christ, but I kept bringing the conversation back to Christ. We have to bring the conversation to the to the persons at uh, to the person and work of Jesus Christ whenever we talk to people. Jesus even asked this of his own followers, right? In Mark or in Matthew chapter sixteen, verse uh, fifteen. But who do you say that I am? That's a crucial question that everyone must answer, because if Jesus is indeed who he claimed to be, and who Scripture says he is, he is then the Lord of all, and we must bow before him. This is why the gospel is a who, not a what. This is why, why it is who is the gospel of God, not what is the gospel of God. Look what Paul reveals to us concerning the Son, that he is eternally coexistent with God. That was born, that he was born of the seed of David, hence his incarnation, and he is the son of God of power, and this is proven by his resurrection. So he is invincible, and finally, that he is Lord. So let's break this down real quick. First, notice that the son is eternally coexistent. The son is eternally coexistent. Paul writes, concerning his son who was descended. And if we look forward uh, to Romans chapter three or 8, verse 3, we know that Paul says that God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law may be fulfilled. And so the son already existed with the father. He's eternally coexisted with the father before he was born of the Virgin Mary in John 17, 5. It tells us, uh, or John 17, 5 tells us that he shares the glory of the Father before the world even existed. Jesus repeatedly spoke of the Father sending him into the world. I say this so that we understand that Jesus wasn't just a normal man who eventually became the Son of God when the Holy Spirit came upon him. There was never a time when Jesus was not God's Son. Nor was Jesus adopted by God at his baptism. Jesus is the eternal Son of God, sent by the Father, who took on human flesh, and then returned to the right hand of the Father to wait for the glorious day when he will come again in judgment. In other words, Jesus is truly God and truly man. And any teaching that denies the full deity of Jesus Christ or the full humanity of Jesus Christ is what we call heresy. It's not scriptural. Jesus is the unique Son of God, coexisting with God as the second person of the Trinity. The New Testament writers affirm the deity of Christ. It has been said that you can have the teachings of Buddha without the person of Buddha. Buddha is not essential to the religion. The same holds true for all of the world's religions except Christianity. Christianity is not just the teachings of Jesus. No, Christianity 
is Jesus. You, you can't just uh, take the teachings of Jesus, the, what he taught, and then set Jesus off to the side, right? Put him on the shelf somewhere. If you're a Christian, it means that you embrace and believe in the person of God's son, Jesus Christ. Any view that demotes Jesus from being God's eternal son is not biblical Christianity. It's something entirely different. Now notice the son's incarnation. The son's incarnation. When Paul says that Jesus was descended from David according to the flesh, he's taking us right back to verse 2. Paul is showing us how Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise through the prophets as we read in the Holy Scriptures. God made a promise to David. That promise was that one uh, of his descendants would sit on his throne forever. It certainly did not seem like this promise was going to be kept. As David's line to the throne over Israel ceased to exist during Babylon. They're all, they're all in Babylonian captivity. 600 years before Jesus Christ. That seems pretty bleak, doesn't it? Like, I don't, I don't, this is never going to happen. I know we read this, but there's no way this is going to happen. It's been 600 years. There's nobody left for the throne of David. Yet the New Testament authors painstakingly make sure that they affirm and make everyone aware that Jesus was born of the lineage of David. This is all through the New Testament, including in the genealogy of Jesus. Now here is the really cool part, right? We have in the beginning of the New Testament, these authors affirming the incarnation of Jesus and his lineage of David. And then we fast forward to the end of the New Testament. And we get Jesus telling John the Revelator this, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. They start off saying, this Jesus is the Christ, and he's in the line of David. And, and Jesus ends in the book of Revelation saying, yeah, that's me. I am the descendant of David. Jesus is the Jewish Messiah who is the son of David who fulfills God's promise to Israel. So yes, Jesus is truly God, but his incarnation makes him truly man. Jesus shares in our humanity in all ways except for in our sinfulness. This is how Jesus could bear the penalty of our sin because as a man, he had no sin. He was perfect. He was the perfect high priest who offered himself for humanity's sin. Jesus came to sympathize with our weaknesses. Don't you get it? What a wonderful Savior we have. He's not somewhere out there, somewhere out of touch. Rather, he encourages us to, to come to him uh, when we're tired and when we're lonely and when we're weak and when we're struggling and when we're tempted and we have all this stuff going on in our lives. This truth is so vital that Jesus was not some sort of angelic spirit being that just seemed to be a man. No. He was a real man. He had real calluses. Jesus cried real tears. Jesus bled real blood. Jesus experienced real hunger. He had real heartache, real pain, real trials and more. He was born physically to Mary of the lineage of David according to the flesh. Now don't miss this though because this also means that Jesus is coming again. 
And when he comes again, he's coming to reign in power and glory from the throne of David. The Jews of Jesus' day knew this. The Jews throughout history knew this. And when Jesus showed up, they rejected him. Why did they reject him? Because he didn't come as a conqueror. He didn't come and, and deal with their physical enemies and set up his earthly kingdom as they expected. Instead, the Roman government crucified him. How in the world could a man who was crucified be the very savior that they knew was coming? How could this man who was dead on a cross reign on David's throne? How could it be? Jesus gives the answer. After his resurrection, right? you know this story. It's one of, my, one of my favorite parts of scripture. He appears to these two men. They're on the road to Emmaus, walking all dejected. Christ had been crucified. And what does he say? What does he say to him? He says, was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then what does Jesus do? Luke tells us, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interprets to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Can you imagine these, these men all the glory to have their eyes opened up by the Messiah who, who they had longed for? No wonder they had spiritual heartburn. This is the point of revelation. Jesus is coming again in power and glory to judge the earth and to reign in righteousness. Glory be to God that one day your faith and my faith will be sight. And I pray that you're on his side before he comes. So when Paul calls Jesus God's son, he's speaking of him eternally coexisting as the son of God. And when he says that he's described a descendant from David according to the flesh, Paul shows us that Jesus is incarnate, born of the Virgin Mary in a humble stable as a man. Jesus was rejected by Israel, crucified by the proud Jewish leaders of his day. And then Paul immediately takes us right back to the glory of Jesus because we notice the son's invincibility. You ever want to be invincible? Like, you can't kill me. <laughs> like, Jesus could, Jesus could say that. Oh, you kill me, I'm just going to raise again. And then he did it. He was truly invincible. It's the resurrection that sets Christ apart from every other religion, every other religious leader. It authenticates his deity. If Jesus had never risen from the dead, he would have just been a good Jewish leader who made some ridiculous claims and demands on those who wanted to follow him. However, if Jesus did rise from the dead, then all of his claims are true. C.S. Lewis writes in Mere Christianity, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great or would, be a, would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says that he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else he's a madman or he's something worse. Jesus is invincible, as he is the only one to ever permanently conquer death. Now, I want to quickly address a few interpretive issues real fast. Because it says that Jesus was declared to be God's son. That word is translated that, uh, that way here, not anywhere else in the New Testament. It means appointed or determined or fixed. This does not mean that Jesus became the son of God through the resurrection. 
Nor does it mean that he was shown to be what he was all along at the resurrection. What it does mean is that he was elevated to a new level of power as the Son of God by virtue of his resurrection. So that as we read at the, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. As one commentator puts it, in other words, Jesus went from being the eternal Son as Messiah to the eternal Son as Messiah and powerful reigning Lord. Paul is giving us a comparison of the two phases of Jesus' ministry. According to the flesh, Jesus, as a descendant of David, lived in humility with his glory veiled during his earthly ministry. However, by virtue of his resurrection from the dead and his exaltation, Jesus brought in a new age of the Holy Spirit. It's interesting as we read this, Paul never comes right out and mentions the death of Jesus in this opening part. However, it is implied because he mentions his resurrection, the emphasis of Paul is on the exaltation of Christ. I love what the Expositor's Bible Commentary says when it says this, it was the infinite worth of the Son that made his saving work possible. One last thing. Satan hates. He hates the doctrine of the resurrection. He's tried to stop it throughout history. From the very beginning, Satan thought he had won, right? He tempts Adam and Eve in that garden. They ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God has assured them that if they ate of the tree, they would surely die. And with Adam's disobedience came spiritual and eventual physical death. Satan put Adam in the grave. In every grave from Adam on is claimed by Satan's possession. And on that day, Jesus died. Satan, I got another one. I claimed another one. God's son, he's dead. Satan thought he had finally won the war. The sinless son of God lay dead in the grave. But dear Christian, can you imagine Satan when Jesus stepped out of that grave. Genesis 3.15 was fulfilled. Death was conquered. And the devil was crushed. And the promise of the resurrection for every single believer was realized. You are no longer a slave to sin and death, believer. But the power, by the power of the resurrection, you are a slave to Jesus Christ. You and I, who were dead in our trespasses and sins, were made alive. Glory be to Christ. I am no longer dead. And so we've seen the gospel of God as a Savior, uh, as a Savior as its focus. The Son is eternally coexistent with the Father. The Son is descended from David, showing his incarnation. The Son is appointed to be the Son of God in power, and he proves his invincibility through the resurrection. Lastly, notice this. The Son is our Lord. The Son is our Lord. Je uh, Jesus Christ, our Lord, Paul says. 
And this summarizes the first three points. Stop and think about it. Jesus is a reference in his humanity. That he was born of the lineage of David. Jesus was his earthly name, which means Yahweh saves. What do we read in Matthew 1, 21? You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. I know that sometimes we get it stuck in our head that Jesus came to help us have a better life or a happier life or, or this, that, or the other, so that we might one day reach our full potential. That's just an American construct of who Jesus is. That's not what the Bible tells us Jesus is. Jesus came to save you from your sins. And if you do not know Jesus Christ as Savior from sin and judgment, then you really don't know Jesus at all. If you think, well, I didn't have any sin, then you don't know Jesus. Paul says, Jesus Christ. Christ meaning Messiah or anointed one. Jesus Christ is God's promised anointed one who will reign on David's throne over God's people. Jesus fulfilled all of God's promises in the Old Testament. Now, out of the 529 times that Christ is used in the New Testament, Paul uses 379 of them. And 65 of them in Romans. Some convincingly argue that Christ was pretty much the proper name that Paul used to refer to Jesus. Paul says, Jesus Christ, our Lord. In the Greek, the word Lord could be looked at as a polite term when they call someone like uh, when we call someone sir however it could also be used of God in the Greek Old Testament actually is a uh, word used to translate the divine name Yahweh when the early church had adopted the confession that Jesus is Lord they understood it to be Jesus is the Lord God Paul loved to use compound expressions to refer to Jesus the exact phrase he used this exact phrase he used 68 times compared to only 19 times in the rest of the New Testament. In Matthew 22, 41 through 46, Jesus questions the Pharisees as to David's son and the Lord. And he asks them what they think about the Christ, who is, whose son is he? <clears throat> Jesus asks. And <clears throat> they correctly respond, well, he's the son of David. And then Jesus, in typical Jesus fashion, Asked them, how can David in the spirit call him Lord then? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit on my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he the son? What's Jesus doing? He's showing them that their view of the Messiah is defective. They only thought of him as David's son. But Psalm 110 David calls him Lord, which means that he is God. Listen to me, Christian. Jesus is our supreme Lord and our possessor. It is crazy to hold to this modern view that you can accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, but never receive him as your Lord. Jesus is one and the same. He is our Lord, Jesus Christ. We don't get the option of saying, um, you know what, Jesus? I want to try you out for a little while. I'm just going to try you out and see how things work out in my life because I'm not quite ready 
for you to be Lord. I'm going to run my own life for a while, and then maybe I'll make you Lord later. We don't make him Lord. He is Lord. We belong to him. He has complete authority over us, and it is absolute. It extends to our heart and even to our conscience as well as our outward conduct. And one day, one day, to him, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that he is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. And while I may not agree with everything that William Barclay has said, I agree with this sermon where he said this, it is now plain to see what a man ought to mean when he calls Jesus Lord, or when he speaks of the Lord Jesus, or of the Lord Jesus Christ. When I call Jesus Lord, I ought to mean that he is the absolute and undisputed owner and possessor of my life. And that he is master, whose servant and slave I must be all life long. When I call Jesus Lord, it ought to mean that I think of him as the head of that great family in heaven and earth of which God is the Father and of which I, through him, have become a member. When I call Jesus Lord, it ought to mean that I think of him as the help of the helpless, the guardian of those who have no other to protect them. When I call Jesus Lord, it ought to mean that I look on him as having absolute authority over all of my life, all of my thoughts, and all of my actions. When I call Jesus Lord, it ought to mean that he is the king and the emperor to whom I owe and give my constant homage, allegiance, and loyalty. When I call Jesus Lord, it ought to mean that for me, he is the divine one whom I must forever worship. And adore. In conclusion, let me ask you this morning. <clears throat> is Jesus your Savior and Lord? In the sense that I just read. You see, the gospel of God is not about self-help. It's not about us and how Jesus can help us have this happy, peaceful life. It's not about living a life of fulfillment. The gospel of God is from God. And it's about God. And it concerns his externally, or his eternal coexistent son, who humbled himself and was born as a descendant of David, according to the flesh. He humbled himself to the point of death even the death on the cross. And after his death, God raised him from the dead and he ascended into heaven. This we can know for certainty as Peter puts it. God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. Is he your savior and Lord? He can be. You acknowledge that you're a sinner. And the only way you can get to heaven is through trusting in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. And you call out to him. You can trust Christ today and place your hope in him by praying something like this. Dear Lord Jesus, I believe you are God's son and died to forgive me of my sins. I know I have sinned. I ask you to forgive me. I turn from my sin and I receive you as my Lord and Savior. Thank you for saving me. I want to live for you the rest of my life. It's not a magic prayer. To trust in Christ that saves you. 
And if you call out to him in that expression, and trust in him to be your Savior and Lord, he will do it. If you said that prayer or something like it, I'd love to follow up with you. Or if you have questions, I'd love to follow up with you. You can text the word FAITH to 309-328-3488. And you'll, again, you'll be sent a card and you just fill it out. And it allows me to follow up with you. It does not come down to, can Jesus give you a happy life? The real question is, who is Jesus? Is he the eternal son who was raised from the dead and exalted as the Lord or not? And if he is, then make sure he's your savior and Lord. And I would say this for those of you that know Christ as your savior, that know him as your Lord and savior. When you make it in your business to share him with others, You have someone that you claim is the supreme ruler of your life. Is he? Is he? Is that evident to other people? That Jesus is your Lord and Savior? Father, thank you. The blessings that you give to us. What I pray that we would be a people of the book. God, that we would pour over your scripture. We'd read it, examine it, let it penetrate our hearts and lives that we'd live by it. We'd devour it like it's our favorite food. We'd hide it in our hearts so we would not sin against you. And then, Lord, I pray that for those that know Christ, that Jesus would truly be Lord. It would be evident in their lives. That we'd ask ourselves, is he Lord? And Father, for those that may have never really received Jesus as Lord, they just got fire insurance. Pray that they'd come to a genuine saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. That he'd be Lord of their life. They'd see their life as not their own. They'd live for Christ. Father, if you've spoken to us today, I pray that we'd respond to this message. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we sing, you'd be willing to come.